Well, as, uh, as you know from driving, if you know the condition of the road that you're traveling upon, you're better able to navigate that road. If you can avoid hazards or pitfalls or other things that you might know are there, then you're uh, going to be able to navigate that road better. And uh, this was, became evident to me when I was in high school. I, I really enjoyed studying maps, still do to this day, but I had the privilege of being the family navigator for our family vacation. And so I'm in the back seat, my dad having knighted me the navigator for our trip, and I was telling him what highways to take, which I still can't believe that he did that without double-checking what I was saying. But, um, and uh, we were trying to get to my grandfather's cabin in Northern California for the first time. We were traveling south from Washington State, and I saw a road on the map that took us directly to the little town where this cabin was, rather than doing a roundabout way that all the other routes uh, seemed to take us. And so I directed our family along this straight route, but I should have been clued in by the fact that the creators of the map chose to make this straight route a different color than all the other roads that were on the map. The other roads were yellow or red or blue. This road was light gray. And uh, the road began to be gravel and then turned to dirt, Uh, but it was not only a dirt road, it had huge rocks protruding in the road, uh, which made for an extremely slow and very bumpy ride. And at a couple points, uh, my mother could have been said, Timothy, why are we going down (laughs) this road? But the real kicker was when we get almost to the end, we had to crest over a a pass. And the little town, little uh, place where the cabin was on the other side, and our family had a a large 12-passenger Ford club wagon at the time, and it had to snake up a narrow ascent with huge boulders protruding on one side, forcing you out against a thousand-foot precipice on the other. And as you can imagine my mother was less thrilled with my choice of road. But we safely navigated that, made it through, but it would have uh, been helpful to know the condition ahead of time, to know, okay, maybe we aren't going to take that road, or at least we could have been better prepared as we went upon it. In fact, just this last summer, I took my family on the very same road, but we were better prepared to navigate this time, and and we made it Uh, made it a uh, a fun adventure in the process. But this reality is true in life nonetheless. If we know what's coming, if we know the road ahead, if we know the the hazards and the pitfalls that lie upon the road, then we can better navigate life. In our text this morning, we're going to see the disciples fail in several areas. We're going to see their incompetence. We're going to see their faithlessness. We're going to see their pride. And from these failures that are exhibited by the apostles, then we're going to see pitfalls that we too need to learn to avoid. These are discipleship pitfalls that we can all be susceptible to fall into. Now, as we saw last week, we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus. This amazing event that took place on a mountaintop there in Galilee where Jesus showed a glimpse of his glory to his disciples. It was as if he pulled back the curtain of heaven just for a moment and allowed the glory to shine through to three of his disciples. And we saw how those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were dumbfounded. They were speechless. And except for Peter, obviously. He tried to make a suggestion, but it was somewhat of a foolish suggestion. But as we're going to find out this morning, the other nine disciples, what were the other nine doing that weren't up on the mountain? Were they doing some great ministry? No, as reality would have it, they didn't fare so well either. And so the reality is all of these men, all 12 of them, needed more training. They still had much they needed to learn. They needed to grow in their conviction 
about who Jesus was. They need to grow in their character. They need to grow in their competence as ministers. And we're going to see that Jesus tries to teach them here in our passage this morning. I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9. If you're not there already, Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 37 through 50 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, I invite you to take one out of the pew rack directly in front of you, and you'll find our passage on page 1031, 1031. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. So I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 37. It says, On the next day, when they came, had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him out by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This morning, in these verses, we're going to see the disciples make several blunders. And we are going to learn from these blunders about four pitfalls that we need to avoid as we follow Jesus as well. Four pitfalls that we need to avoid. Let's look at the first pitfall. In verses 37 through 43, the first part of 43, 43a, we see this. Depending on ourselves is a pitfall. Depending on ourselves. And again, we see this in the first narrative in verses 37 through 43. After the transfiguration, Luke picks up this narrative by saying that it was the next day. Look at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John are all walking down the mountain and they get to the base, and they're met by a huge crowd, it says. A great crowd met him. I suspect the crowds of people found the other nine apostles that were waiting at the base of the mountain for Jesus and the other three to come back. They had left them as they hiked up, and they were now waiting. And so as these crowds were looking for Jesus, they go, hey, those are his disciples. Let's, let's go and wait with them. And so now as they see Jesus and these three disciples descending from the mountain, their excitement begins to spread through the crowd. You can, you can, you can hear even the murmur, right? That here's, He's coming, he's coming. And so they all sort of get up. They've been sitting on the grass, and now they're excited because here he is. He's finally coming back into their midst. And here we again see the popularity of Jesus. This isn't a few scraggly uh, groups of people. This is a great crowd that comes to see him. He's loved by the masses. They love the wonderful things that he does. The question is, do they really accept him? Do they truly submit to him? As Jesus is mobbed by this crowd, a man approaches him with a desperate concern. Look at verse 38 and 39. It says, And behold, 
uh, behold, a word that's meant to grab your attention as you're reading. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. This man is deeply concerned for his only son. We know this isn't the first time that Luke has highlighted an only child. In fact, over his last chapters 7, 8, and 9, an only child has been mentioned in each one. Chapter 7, an only son, a mother was taking him out to be buried, and Jesus comes up and touches him and raises him back to life. Chapter 8, Jesus is, is pleaded with by Jairus, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue, to come heal his only child, a daughter. Jesus goes and raises her back to life. And now here in chapter 9, an only son. The situation for this child is dire. The, the man asks Jesus, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. This isn't just a look of like, hey, could you look at him? This is a look with care and concern. Could you come and examine? Could you come and look with care upon my son? Luke, the physician, tells of what's going on with his child, and your heart breaks for him. Verse 39, And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. I have to imagine this man is crying out to Jesus with tears streaming down his face. His heart is broken for his son. He's watched his son for years be afflicted with this, and he's desperate. He says in verse 40 that he begged the disciples to to cast this demon out, and they could not. And so now his desperation even mounts if the followers of Jesus can't cast him out. I sure hope he can. And so he, this father cries out to Jesus. It says that an evil spirit, a demon as he's identified later in the text, is what is controlling this boy. It sends him to the ground in, in convulsions and foaming at the mouth. And this demon rarely leaves him. It says, verse, end of verse 39, it says, will hardly leave him. It, it, it barely gives him rest. Matthew says that he has these epileptic seizures, and some have been led to think that he has actually the condition of epilepsy. I don't think that was the case. I think that the demon is what caused all of these symptoms, throwing him to the ground, and people at that time said, hey, that looks like epilepsy. That looks like an epileptic seizure. seizure. And so they simply identified it as such. But it's clear that the behavior of this boy was not disease-inspired, but demon-inspired. And we need to see here that, folks, this is the goal of Satan and his demons. Number one, they are real. They are not just a figment or some boogeyman that is out there that religious people come up with to have some sort of bad guy in our lives. The, Satan is the enemy of God. Demons are the fallen angels that do his bidding and do his work in this world. And he wants to destroy image bearers of God. I mean, think about it. If Satan is the enemy of God and he can't really get at God, he can't go and charge the gates of heaven with his army and think that he's going to win against Almighty God because he's not God himself. He's only a created being. So what does he do? He attacks those who bear the image of God. He attacks those who carry the image of his enemy. You see, Satan and his demons have no regard for human life. Here, they're destroying this boy. This is what Satan loves to do, to torture and destroy those who bear God's image. Again, there was nothing that the father could do. He simply had to watch his son go through these episodes year after year as the demon would have its way with his child, his only child. And so naturally, this man is desperate for help. And so he went first, as we said, verse 40, he went to the disciples. But I believe that these were the nine who were left at the bottom of the hill. The others were up on the mountain with Jesus. These nine were down waiting and he asked them to cast this demon out. And it says that they were unable. You have to imagine that they were, they were, uh, they had the desire to. They tried, but it didn't work. 
And now they're hanging their head in shame. This must have been frustrating for them. I mean, think about verse 1 of this very chapter. It says that he had called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And so they've been given authority to be able to do this. And yet here they try, and it doesn't work. They were unable to do what Jesus had sent them out to do. But notice that this inability of the disciples prompts a stern rebuke from Jesus. Look at verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation. That O is a, is a word that marks the emotion of Jesus. He goes deep and he just says, O generation that is without faith and is crooked. His heart is breaking in one sense over the lack of faith he sees. Now who is he addressing? Is he speaking this directly at the disciples? Is he saying it just at the crowd? I believe it was a mix. It included the disciples, but also included the whole generation. It included the nation. Hence why he says, uses the word generation. But we can't exclude the disciples from this rebuke. They receive, they rightly receive a rebuke here. And so with these words, faithless and twisted generation, Jesus compares Israel of his day with the Israel of the wilderness generation. You have to rewind your biblical history back to when Israel was a nation in Egypt in slavery. God saved them out of there with Moses, helping them to lead the way out of Egypt, the, what we call the Exodus, and they were redeemed and saved out of Egypt freed from their slavery, and then they had to go into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, receive the law, and then they marched to the promised land. They sin on their way, and they're left to wander amongst the wilderness until they're allowed to go into the promised land after that generation has died off. And so when we say the wilderness generation, we're talking about the generation of those who disbelieved the Lord and were punished by having to die in the desert. In other words, wilderness generation means the unbelieving generation. Moses, Jesus here is picking up words from the Old Testament. Moses describes his own generation in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. And he says, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Crooked and twisted generation. And then in verse 20, he says this, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom, there is, in, in whom is no faith." fullness. Jesus is pulling language from Deuteronomy and saying this applies to my generation just as it applied to that wilderness generation. And so shockingly, Jesus is saying this generation, the people directly in front of him, they're flocking to see him. There's a crowd. You'd think they love him, but he knows their hearts. He knows that they do not trust in the Lord that they are just as unbelieving as that wilderness generation, and that they pervert or make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. They are wicked at heart. And so he asks them a question. He says, how long am I to be with you? This cry of the prophet saying, how long am I to instruct you in the way? How long am I, am I to give you God's truth? How long until they repent and they trust in Yahweh? Now, Matthew and Mark record a question in which the disciples say, Hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus replies that it requires faith and prayer. And so the point is that they needed to trust God. They needed to ask God to do this work, but they had assumed because they had this power given by Jesus previously, they stepped confidently into this situation where a guy was asking to cast out a demon, and they boastfully thought that they could handle this. I got this covered. You see, Jesus gave me some power. I know how to do this. And so they go and try to wield the magic powers, thinking that they can depend upon themselves and their own strength. But they found it doesn't work that way. They've got to depend upon the Lord. They've got to depend upon Jesus for everything. They do it dependently upon Him. 
And so these, these men were faithless, these disciples, along with the generation. They forgot that the only reason that they could do amazing things and cast out demons and heal diseases was because of Jesus. It wasn't because of them. It wasn't because they were extra special. It was all because of the Lord. And therefore, they needed to minister dependently. They needed to minister dependently, depending upon Him. And this is the takeaway for us. We too, in our lives and ministries, want to depend upon ourselves. We want to think that we have some inherent strength. We have some inherent power. We have something extra special. But the reality is, is all that we have, any positive that we bring, any good goodness that we can do in someone else's life or in our own lives is all a gift. It all comes from the Lord. And so we, we live our lives dependently, seeking to live holy and righteous lives, knowing that if, if we do make right choices, it's not for us to take credit. It's for God to get the glory. If we minister to somebody and encourage them with the word or serve them in some way and they're, and they're, and they're helped, we don't get the glory. God gets the glory. We depend upon Him, and He gets all the credit. We must minister dependently and not fall into this pitfall that, that the disciples fell into in depending upon themselves. Jesus made it clear in John 15 that apart from Him, we can do nothing. We're powerless to change ourselves. We're powerless to change others. We're powerless to bring about spiritual fruit of any kind. And we've got to remember that day in and day out because we're tempted to think that we can do it on our own. And this vignette closes with Jesus once again performing an incredible miracle. He says, bring your son here. Bring your son here. Notice he has an eye towards the faith of the generation. He has an eye towards the disciples. He's got a training and teaching desire across the crowd. But he's got a very specific compassion for this father and for this son. He's not going to neglect them. Verse 42, look at it. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. This demon wants to show his might and his power and, and his destruction to this boy, even in the face of Jesus, probably knowing what's coming. And yet, he says, I'm going to exert my power up to the very end. He's going out, kicking and screaming. The demon finally met one he could not win. The disciples couldn't defeat him. But here, he stands before the Son of God. And so, verse 42, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. This demon has to obey the king of kings. He has to obey the son of God because he is God himself. And so he leaves the boy for good. Jesus then kindly gives the boy back to his father in an act of compassion and restores that family and restores that boy. Can you imagine the embrace of that father to his healed son? To realize that his boy is back to him, healed and whole once again. And so rightly so, verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. You see, the power that Jesus exerts is the power of God. And so the majesty that's on display is not just a human Jesus majesty, it is a divine majesty. Jesus put that on display time and time again. And so Jesus deserves to be worshipped for his amazing power. So in this first episode, we see the first discipleship pitfall, and that is depending on ourselves. Let's look at the second discipleship pitfall in this passage, and that is losing sight of the cross. Losing sight of the cross. We see this in verses 43 through 45. It says, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered, to be delivered into the hands of men. So the crowds are marveling, it says here. They're marveling at all that Jesus was doing. I think this applies to the miracle we just saw. But it's also a summary statement, I think, of everything Jesus has done. 
Notice it says, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing. This, this is a summary statement saying that the crowd was fascinated with all that was going on, all that Jesus could do, which is why the crowd was flocking to him. But Jesus knows that public adulation is not the final word of his ministry. That public praise is not where it's going to end. And so he pulls his disciples aside for private instruction. Matthew and Mark particularly highlight this. They tell us that Jesus pulled the disciples aside to a place in Galilee, or as they're walking through Galilee, he wanted to instruct them privately. And he gave them these words in particular. He says, you see all that marveling? You see all that astonishment that's going on? Well, let me tell you something, and let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the second time that he's revealed to his disciples the fact that he's about to be crucified of his impending death. The first time was earlier in this chapter, verses 21 and 22, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus wants these men to get it into their heads that Jesus is headed to death. He's headed to the cross. The cross is necessary. The cross is coming soon. But you see, verse 45, they didn't understand this. They did not understand this saying. They couldn't get it into their thick heads that this Messiah, who was destined for glory, whom three of them saw the majestic glory, that before that glory came, there was a cross. Before that great crowning glory, there was going to be suffering and death. They didn't seem to have a category for a suffering Messiah. They believed that Jesus would break out into a glorious campaign. And they thought that there would be military victory coming. Which is not an unfounded expectation. The Old Testament set them up for that. That indeed this Messiah would indeed crush his enemies and shatter them. And rule them with a rod of iron, as Psalm 2 says. So the expectation is right, but they're having to learn the hard way, the, the right sequence of God's agenda. We know that Jesus initially said, for them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was saying that the kingdom was near, but they needed to repent. And what we're seeing here in Luke now is, as He's ending his Galilean ministry is that the people and the leaders have not turned in repentance to him. They've been fascinated with him, but there has not been mass repentance and faith. Instead, the opposition has only heightened. While there might be public praise, there's not allegiance that is given to Jesus. Therefore, as Jesus says, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. A play on words there. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, verse 45 presents an interesting reason for the apostles not understanding this truth. Look at it. It says, But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This says that it was concealed from them. This is what we call a divine passive, which means that God is the, the actor, even though he's not explicitly mentioned. God has concealed it from them so that they might not perceive it. And this is consistent with other passages of Scripture. This is not the only place that talks about God concealing or God sovereignly working things according to his will. By God concealing these things, it does not absolve people from their responsibility. We are faced with, this, with these two realities that must be affirmed in Scripture. One is the absolute sovereignty of God, that He can do what He wants, He can do what He wills, whenever He wants. And yet, mankind is responsible. There's human responsibility. These two things live in tension throughout all of Scripture and all of time. Can they be resolved in perfect harmony? We know they resolve perfectly in the mind of God, but for our finite minds, we bump up against mystery. 
and so too here. Why would God conceal this from them? There's no answer given. Maybe from John chapter 16, Jesus says, there's much for me to tell you, but you cannot bear it right now. Maybe there's some way which they, they could not bear all of this. But what we know is that in the perfect plan of God, he chose to open their minds to understand all that the Messiah had come to do after the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verse 45, says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And friends, here's the principle for us. God is the one who is sovereign over human hearts. God is the one who is able to open minds and give understanding. God is sovereign over all these things. It says the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus. Why were they afraid? We don't know. Were they afraid of, a, of another rebuke? They just heard a rebuke earlier. Oh, twisted, faithless and twisted generation. But are they afraid of a rebuke here? We don't know. We get the sense that if they were to ask, that Jesus may have even explained it to them. But they didn't ask. I think the, the point for, here for us is that, it's, is that as the disciples failed to understand the cross, so we too can fail to factor in the cross into our theological outlook as well. Now, they were on the other side of the cross. They were pre-cross as they were looking forward to the Messiah being crucified. And they failed to, have the, to factor the cross into their theological outlook at all. Now, praise God, we know the cross has already happened. We know that Jesus has already been sacrificed. But even with that being the case, we can fail to factor in the cross as well. And I think that can happen two ways for us. Number one is we can fail to reflect upon the cross. We can fail to reflect upon the cross. We move on in our Christian life. We feel like we've um, passed go. We've collected $200. We're moving on. And the cross is in our rearview mirror. And so, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, and we move on from there. And so the cross is well behind us somewhere in our past, something that we believe we heard some time ago. But friends, for disciples of Jesus, the cross should never leave our viewpoint. We must reflect upon the cross on a daily basis. You see, the cross is not part of our past. It's part of our present. It's part of our future. You know the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, that's the, the words of one who has the cross before him, who realizes that every moment of his Christian life is because he lives with the crucified Savior, that he has died to himself. He's been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He lives by faith in the Son of God, what son of God? The son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. Friends, the cross has got to be our daily reflection. We've got to keep it ever before us. So we, we fail to keep the cross uh, before us by failing to reflect upon the cross. And secondly, uh, we, we fail to recognize the calling that the cross has upon us. We fail to remember that if Christ went to the cross, then we too must take up our cross daily and follow him. You see, the, the cross is the pattern for daily dying to self. If this, our Savior suffered, then we will suffer too. This is the example he left for us, and this is the pattern that we saw earlier in this chapter. Remember when Jesus first gave this prediction of his death, and then he turns to his disciples and says, listen, I'm going to be dying, I'm going to suffer, therefore you must take up your cross daily and follow me. And you might lose your life, you might lose your physical life on this earth, but you're going to gain your life in the end. Do not evaluate your life by simply what you can see and feel, but re realize 
what your life is in light of eternity. Know that you will gain when you are with me, even though you might lose your physical life on this earth. And so we must never lose sight of Christ. We must never lose sight of the cross. Believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. The Spirit is a teacher sent to us to help point our gaze to Christ, as Jesus said in in John 16. This teacher comes to us and will teach us all things regarding Christ. You have a teacher dwelling inside of you to help teach you and show you about Jesus. And so we struggle to keep the cross before us, but we must ask the Spirit to help us, to teach us, to set our gaze upon Him. Help us keep the cross before us. So the discipleship pitfalls that we've seen so far are depending on ourselves, losing sight of the cross. The third pitfall in our passage this morning is comparing ourselves to others. Comparing ourselves to others. Have uh, you ever told your kids something? Like give them this like really important lesson and they say, do you understand me, right? We always ask that question. Do you understand? Do you understand? Yes, Papa. Yes. You know, they, they nod and, and then they run off and they do something instantly and you're like, you do not understand. <laughs> you do not understand. That means I probably need to teach it better than just uh, the way I just did it. But that's exactly what happens here in, the, in our text. Jesus says, listen up, guys. This is very important. And they turn around and they do something. And you're like, you guys don't get it, do you? You just don't get it. Look at verse 46. He's just told them about the cross, and then he says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. You can see them sitting there, and Jesus is telling them about the cross, and like, Okay, yes, Jesus, okay. They turn like, so who do you think is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You know, and you're like, wait, what? Did you, did you really just hear what he said? The one you're following is on his way to death, and you're talking about greatness. Were you actually listening? I mean, this isn't too hard to imagine, right? I mean, there's, these guys have some things to 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 talk about. I mean, they all were, had power to go cast out demons, and they did that earlier as we saw in the chapter. But now, you know, Peter, James, and John, they're coming down the mountain feeling pretty good. They saw Jesus' glory. I mean, sorry, Judas, you can't beat that, you know? And so he's feeling pretty good. And, uh, he's, you know, so, so Peter may say, well, James, John, and I are greater than you nine since and since I spoke up in the midst of all that glory, then I'm greater than even Peter and John. And then John pipes up and says, yeah, but you gave a stupid suggestion about three-tenths, so at least James and I kept our mouths shut. Nathaniel or someone joins in saying, yeah, Peter, just a week ago, Jesus called you Satan and told you to get behind him. You know, and so they're finding all these ways to jockey uh, opinions and put each other down and try to see who was the greatest, who had the least marks against him. And, and the juxtaposition couldn't be greater, right? Jesus, the Son of Man, on a dedicated mission to redeem humanity by giving himself as an innocent sacrifice upon the cross. And here his followers are not thinking about him, are not thinking about that mission. They're thinking about themselves. They're not denying themselves. They're, thinking of, they're not thinking of Christ first. And so their pride drove them to begin to compare themselves with one another. They, they each believed that they were the greatest disciple, and so they begin to argue about it. And we can laugh at them, and we can, we can uh, say, how could you be so stupid? And yet, we know how easy that is for us, do we not? For us to compare ourselves to those around us, to make ourselves better because of what we see in the failures of other people. Oh, and this isn't just looking at the people outside the church, we make these comparisons with our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? In fact, it can be even a lot of the Christian things, ministry and all the rest, that can enable us to get the most pride and compare ourselves most sinfully. 
we want to be seen and thought of as the greatest. For some, the temptation is to be the one, be seen as the one with the greatest biblical knowledge or the most profound insights, to speak up at just the right time with the right thing. While others who say, they're so boastful with their, with their pride of biblical knowledge, but they take pride in knowing so little and just having this posture of learning and going, I, I don't know anything, I'm just here to learn. They take pride in that posture. For some, it's to be seen as the one with the greatest passion and emotion for Jesus. All those dead people around me, but at least I love the Lord. But then there's others who look at that and go, that person rides a roller coaster. I'm steady. I'm steady for the Lord. At least I don't, I don't have those peaks and valleys like they do. For others, it could take pride in the fact that they're so transparent and real. I just lay it all out there. I don't hide anything. I just love to, to dump everything out. Others take pride in being most involved in ministry. What's their problem? They got a free night of the week? Why aren't they using that to serve the Lord? I fill up all my nights. Again, we can kind of chuckle at these. But friends, these are the temptations that creep into our souls. And we need to each evaluate our hearts and say, where is the temptation for us? The question is not if, but where. Where does the temptation for pride creep into your heart? Where does the temptation to compare yourself with others exist? Because we have a flesh. A flesh, the the sinful nature that still resides within us. The unsanctified parts of our hearts that loves to hijack even good things. We like to compare ourselves with other Christians so that we come out on top. Well, in the midst of this wrestling match the disciples are having, you kind of picture maybe hushed whispers. You know, no, no, I'm a great son. He goes, no, who are you? No, no, no. You know, they're kind of trying to keep it from Jesus because they kind of know they probably shouldn't be having this conversation. But look at verse 47. It says, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Jesus knows what's going on. He either overhears, but he knows what's going on deep in their hearts. He is God, remember? And so he knows what goes on in hearts. And so he provides an object lesson. And he pulls a child close to him. And then based upon this child, he, he makes a couple statements regarding receiving. Look at it in verse 48. It says, and said, He said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Here's what Jesus, I think Jesus wants us to learn from this statement. You see, when we're all jockeying for the greatest position, when we're all thinking that we're the greatest and we deserve to be on top and be seen as the most spiritual, the most whatever, we are not thinking of others, are we? We're not thinking of those who might be less fortunate than us or those who need help, ways that we can serve others. We are especially ignoring those who have absolutely no standing. You know, when we want to be the greatest, we might be thinking of those who are in second place to us, or so we think, right? They're in second place. Well, I'm here, or they're there, and we're trying to, we're thinking about them and always trying to get a leg up over them. Or we might be friends with someone who's above us, and so that it'll, it'll raise our standing. And so we think the people that are right there are kind of, kind of competing with us. But the people that are way down the totem pole, the people that have no status, and that if we befriend them or are close to them, isn't going to cause us to gain anything in the eyes of anybody else, we can easily ignore them. Jesus uses a child to represent that person in a lowly position. In that culture, children had no social standing. Rabbis didn't waste their time with children. And here's Jesus pulling a child close and says that you must receive this child in his name. Pay attention to lowly ones such as this. And in doing that, you're receiving me. Jesus wants us to receive those who are the least, who have low social standing as represented by this child. And by receiving, Jesus means to welcome or to receive with gladness and openness. Not a, oh yeah, you can come in, sure, yeah, sure, come. 
but a, an embrace, a welcoming, a focus of attention, a serving, a focusing on them. When we receive children and other people with low standing, we are showing our receptivity to Jesus, he says. And when we show our receptivity to Jesus, we show it likewise of God the Father. In other words, if our faith is genuine, it will show itself in ministry and love towards all kinds of people. And why do we, we relationally move towards all people, even those such as a child? Because among God's people, even those who are least are great. That's what he says, right? For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Notice he doesn't say greatest. There's no comparisons. Saying that all are great. If even the least is great, then all are great. All have equal standing before God. All followers of Christ are great as they humble themselves and serve others and seek to provide to those who have no status at all. And so we must avoid this pitfall. We must seek to not compare ourselves with others, to not seek to jockey for positions within the church, to try to think of ourselves as more important than the people around us as greater. Folks, we are all sinners saved by God's grace. One theologian said, the ground before the cross is level. We all stand there, and we're all of equal height. Therefore, because we've been shown so much love by the Father, we must serve all people. We don't choose to only serve those who give us a good benefit back or make us look good. We serve all those, those who can't pay us back, those who don't even recognize they're being served, like children. The implication is that if we're not serving, then this is an indicator that we could be pridefully thinking ourselves as great. We're thinking too highly of ourselves. I believe this verse is also a strong argument for why the church invests in children. But we don't have time to get into that today. So let's look at the fourth and final pitfall for us. Fourth and final pitfall is denouncing other gospel ministries. Denouncing other gospel ministries. We'll see this quickly in the last two verses. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now verse 49 here seems to change the topic, but notice the word that Luke chose here in verse 49, John answered. You only answer if you're replying to something, right? So John is replying to something Jesus has just said. I think the, the connection can be made this way. John hears that whoever does ministry in the name of Christ, notice verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name, I think that's the connection, is that phrase, in my name, he hears that whoever does this kind of ministry, receiving people in the name of Christ, does the will of Christ and does the will of the Father. And that causes John to think about an exchange with someone doing ministry in Jesus' name that they had seen. And so John thinks, wait a minute, Jesus, are you saying that doing ministry in your name is all you require? Because we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but they didn't follow with us, so we try to stop them. In other words, he thinks there's other criteria that should be in place in order to be a faithful minister of Christ. But Jesus replies to him in verse 50. He says, do not stop him. Do not stop him. Jesus says, don't hinder him. Don't try to stop him from what he's doing. They should have allowed that ministry to go on. Why? Look at the principle he lays out at the end of verse 50. For the one who is not against you is for you. For the one who is not against you is for you. And this is a principle that we need to heed to as well. You see, John needed to realize that being faithful to Jesus didn't mean that they had to be in their group or in their tribe. They were, there were apparently some who did ministry in Jesus' name, and they were to be encouraged and not hindered. They were to rejoice in seeing this ministry go forward, even though it wasn't within their own ranks. The Apostle Paul exemplified this well when he, from a prison cell, writes to the church in Philippi, and he writes this. In, first, in Philippians 1, 15 through 18, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Friends, the danger here is that we believe that only our tribe only our sect, only our group, however you define that, is the only place where true gospel ministry takes place. And if we begin to think that way and exclude people outside that are doing gospel work, then we're disobeying this principle that Jesus laid out for us. Now there needs to be some caution here because people might point to this verse and say, look, any person who claims the name of Jesus and claims to be a preacher of the gospel, then you shouldn't oppose them because, look, they're not against you. They say they're doing it in Jesus' name. And yet the New Testament is very clear that there are false teachers that are out there and seek to even get inside the church and there are wolves in sheep's clothing seeking to destroy the church from within. And so there needs to be a way to discern ministries, discern teaching, discern what people are saying and doing. And the the criteria throughout the New Testament is to judge doctrine and to judge fruit. Judge doctrine and judge fruit. This one must have passed that. But we cannot add other things on top of that. Well, you can't just have, it's not just having the good, right doctrine, and it's not just living gospel lives and having gospel fruit, but there's other things. You have to be a part of our group, and you have to go to our seminaries, and you have to do all these sorts of things to be in our tribe. And if you're not within our tribe, then, well, then you should stop. Jesus says, no, allow it to continue. He wants us to be as open-spirited as possible, rejoicing in all that God is doing through others. Pastor David, my predecessor, used to say all the time, blowing out someone else's candle doesn't make yours burn any brighter. Blowing out someone else's candle doesn't make yours burn any brighter. We can't allow our pride to think that our ministry is the most important and that somehow putting down other good gospel ministries is going to somehow advance our own. That's not the way of Christ. And so, as we see from these verses, friends, there is a a path of discipleship before us, but there are pitfalls that we can come across. And we need to be vigilant, making sure that we ourselves are not falling into those pitfalls ourselves. That we might be able to walk upon that road faithfully and not twist an ankle and be sidelined from ministry as we step into these potholes. And that we might be able to minister faithfully and solely to the name and the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these words from your from the scriptures on how we are to follow you. I pray, Lord, that you would protect Foothill Bible Church from being a place of pride, a place where we take glory in our, what we can do, that we, that we would depend upon ourselves. Lord, may it never be. May we depend upon Christ. May we put others first. May we serve those around us. And may you get the glory through our ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.